The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. So today we're going to finish 1 Peter. Uh, we'll wrap it up this morning. Uh, and again, uh, remember as we walk through this, the context is always so important. The context of the fact that Peter is writing this church, knowing that they're about to face persecution, uh, that there's this intense persecution coming uh, from the Roman Emperor Nero on the horizon. And uh, he writes this letter and he gives his purpose in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. Right? So as this persecution is coming, this intense, immense persecution is on the horizon for this church, Peter says, you need to stand firm in the gospel. Yes, there's a storm coming, but stand firm in the gospel. And so, just a quick reminder of where Peter's taken us so far. Remember, he started off talking about our salvation and that if your salvation is genuine, it will yield Christian maturity through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in the heart of the believer, and he will mature you in the faith, right? You're not who you once were. And that radical change in identity and perspective builds confidence in God. As you look back in your life and you see that, the, that God has changed you, you're no longer who you once were, you see God working in your life that builds confidence in God in you, right? You start to see, man, God's changed me. He must be real. I, I, can, I can trust him with more aspects of my life that helps you to continue to grow in your faith. Peter told us to arm ourselves with Christ-like understanding. What does that look like? He said that Jesus endured suffering so that he might bring you to God. So Christ-like understanding means that even in the midst of suffering, we live with an intense focus completely on the glory of God and building his kingdom. So even in the midst of persecution, Peter's telling this church to focus yourself on living for the glory of God. Don't focus on the circumstances of life. Focus with an intense focus on living your life for the glory of God and living on mission for him. Then Peter told us to not just be partakers in the power of the Spirit, uh, to make us spiritually alive, but to live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit daily. Then two weeks ago, we kind of got to the heart of Peter's letter, and we said as we walk in the Spirit, we will suffer, and we should expect that suffering and rejoice in it. That yes, as a believer... You will face suffering. You should expect it. Jesus faced suffering. You're a Christ follower. If you're following after him, you're going to face suffering as well. Rejoice in that, is what Peter says. Rejoice in that suffering. And then last week, we talked about the need for spiritual leaders within the church to lead us through the fiery ordeal and not just coach us through it. We said that shepherds should be passionate and not lazy, pure in their motives and not greedy, and they set the precedent by being the example of what, the Christian, li of what Christian living is all about. So today we're going to finish up chapter 5 and his concluding remarks. And he's going to give us four keys to standing firm and enduring through the suffering. All right, so let's pick up in verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, 
and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written you, uh, written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, so let's jump into it. Uh, four keys to standing firm in the midst of suffering. Number one is this, humble yourself. He says humble yourself. We kind of wrapped up last week with the same idea. Look, verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Um, I told you guys before, uh, in our household growing up, dad was the authority, right? And I uh, submitted to him for two reasons. One, because he was stronger than me and could kill me. Um, so there was power, right? Uh, but two was because simply because he had the position of father, right? And so I respected him because of the position. So he had the power, and he could wield the power as he willed, right? But he also had the position, and because of that, I feared him, I respected him, and uh, tried to live according to what he wanted in our household. We finished up last week with Peter quoting Proverbs 3.34. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, this is where he gets to this week, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter's point here is that believers in humility need to submit themselves to God. That you as a professing Christian should humble yourself before a mighty God. This is a problem for a lot of people, though, because we don't like to submit ourselves to anything or anyone. We have this false sense of self-control and individualism that we've kind of built up in our minds. We think that we've worked to earn what we have and that we're owed it. First Chronicles 29, 14 says this, though. He says, but who am I and who are my people? This is David talking. That we should be able to give as generously as this. For everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. Nothing is yours. Your life is not yours. And, and if you're a Christian, you should totally get that, right? Because that's what, that's what leads us to salvation is when we come before God and recognize that our life is not our own and we lay it before God and we surrender ourselves to him. That's what leads to salvation. And yet somehow we still think our life is our own. We don't want to submit our sexuality to God. That's ours. We like to satisfy our fleshly desires, so we just keep doing it, and it doesn't matter what God wants. We don't want to submit our money to God. That's ours. We earn that money. We work for it, so we'll keep a tight grip on it and serve ourselves with it. Who cares what God wants? We don't want to submit our children to God. They're ours. We don't care what God wants for their life. We want them to be successful in life. We want them to be popular. We want them to have everything the world has to offer. We don't want to submit our loneliness, our anger, our greed to God. We want to keep what we want to keep. And yet somehow in our misconstrued minds, we still think that we're owed eternal life from God. We think, I can hold on to all of these things and give God certain aspects that I'm willing to give him. And yet, and yet still think that we're owed eternal life from God. Listen to me, this, that's not how it works. 
That's not how it works. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and for him to be Lord means that you give him all aspects of your life. And listen, withholding things, that's pride. That's pride. That's, that's rebellion. When you say, you know what, I know, God, that your word says this, but I'm going to do this because this is what I want, that's pride, that's rebellion, that's a heart that rejects Jesus in the gospel. Peter says, humble yourself, recognize God's infinitely greater in strength and wisdom, and submit yourself to him. Humility is the foundation of obedience. When your eyes are open to the reality of who God is, you will be humbled and you will submit in obedience. This is a basic fruit of salvation. Paul talks about it with the Romans in Romans 8, 5. He says, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. He says the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are the flesh cannot please God. You, see the contrast is different here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Paul says, rebellion against God is the mindset of the flesh. And if you're truly a believer, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If you've truly given your life to Christ, if you truly have salvation, if you truly surrendered your life to Jesus, you're in the Spirit. In other words, someone who is truly saved will walk in humility and submit themselves to God's will for their own life. Someone in the Spirit chooses obedience even in the midst of suffering. This is the point that Peter's trying to make. Someone who's truly saved will submit in obedience even in the midst of suffering. So while suffering may cause you to question God's purpose, you still choose to submit to him because his infinite strength and wisdom are worthy of your submission. Because of his power and his position, you submit to God regardless of what the circumstances are. That's the life of the Christian. Regardless of what your circumstances are in life, regardless of what your own wisdom tells you, regardless of what you want for your life, you lay it all down because of God's power and because of God's position, you submit yourself to him. Peter says, humble yourself before a mighty God, and at the right time, he will exalt you. Exalt just means to lift up. So what Peter is saying is at the right time, when God sees fit, he will lift you up even in your suffering. The Spirit of God will produce joy within you even in the midst of suffering. James says the same thing regarding sin in James 4. He says in 4, 7, therefore submit to God, there it is again, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And listen to this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. James says, humble yourself and submit to God and he will lift you up out of that misery and dread caused by your sin. Peter's point is humble yourself and submit to God and he will lift you up out of the misery and dread caused by your suffering. Yes, suffering may come as a Christian, but submitting to God, trusting him, 
walking in obedience, even in that suffering, will yield a peace that passes all understanding. He also says, unload yourself. Look at verse 7. He says, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Last week, uh, we got a coffee shipment in, and uh, there was several boxes back here in the back. And so Sunday morning, uh, I usually get here early. I bring the kids with me because they like to come early and hang out. And, uh, and so Davis was back there with me, and I was starting to pick up all the boxes to bring to the front so the guest services people could start putting it where it goes. And uh, Davis is like, hey, I wanna, can I help you? I was like, sure. So I grabbed the two smaller boxes and handed them to them, not realizing they were the creamer, so they're a little heavier. So I handed him those, and he's like, oh, gosh. He's like walking like he's a bazillion pounds. And I had the rest of it. And we take like three steps, and he's like, obviously, it's, it's not happening, right? He's, there's no way he's going to be able to carry these boxes. And, uh, and so I set mine down. I'm like, here, you can put yours on top of mine. And, uh, and I'll carry it too. So I pick it up, and he, he ended up with one box of the coffee, which is pretty light. And, uh, and so I took that load and carried it out. Um, and his, uh, he picks it up and, and sets it down or whatever, and he just lets out this huge, like, sigh of relief once he lets down that. Like it was the heaviest thing he's ever carried in his life. Um, it, like he just unloaded all the way to the world. Peter says, a key to, to standing firm in the midst of suffering is casting your cares on him. Unload yourself. Unload your burdens. God's not surprised by the fear and anxiety that comes with suffering. Right? When we look at the, the global landscape today as Christians and we see what's on our horizon, for some of us sometimes it may well up a little bit of anxiety and fear, right? Like living for our faith could yield real suffering in our lifetime. We, we see some crazy stuff happening around the world and we think that, that makes me feel a little bit uneasy, makes me feel a little bit fearful. Peter says, cast that fear and anxiety on God. He's not surprised by the fear and anxiety that comes with suffering. He knows the emotions that suffering can elicit. He knows how hard life can be. Hebrews 4.14 we know this passage, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. This is an unbelievable reality for you as a Christian. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows because he suffered. He endured it. He endured the cross. He's not just in heaven dishing out these commands. No, he came down to earth in the form of a servant and bore the suffering and shame of the cross. He knows what it's like to suffer, and he can carry our burdens. Remember what he says in Matthew 11. Verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes, suffering is wearisome. It will cause stress, it will cause anxiety. But Peter says, place all your cares on him because he can bear it and he has the strength. And why do we take our burdens? Peter says, because he cares about you. He cares about you. Now, let's just take a second and reflect on the amazing reality of that truth. 
the God who created the universe cares about you. He cares about you. God, I share this verse all the time, and I do it because I want to like hammer this into your mind so that you can understand it. God proved his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God's proven his love for you. And for us, sometimes we wrestle with that truth. God loves you. He proved it. And listen to me, to believe otherwise is a false accusation against the God that gave his only begotten son for you. For you to believe anything other than that truth, that God loves you and cares about you, is a false accusation against the God who created all things and gave his only begotten son for you, even though you were a sinner and had a rebellious heart against him. God cares about you. He wants you to unload your burdens on him, and he gladly takes it. He gladly takes it. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4. Verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, don't carry your anxieties and fear. Instead, pray to God, bring those things before God. And he'll make a trade with you. you, Did you catch that in that verse? God will make a trade for you. You bring him your stress, your anxieties, your fears. You lay them before him and he trades you and gives you the peace that passes all understanding. A peace that is unbelievable. It goes beyond our human understanding. It makes no sense to us as, as, as humans to be able to see and experience the peace that passes all understanding. That's the trade that God wants to make with you because he cares about you. He doesn't want you to just have to go through suffering alone. No, he says, bring those things to me. Bring the fear and the anxiety to me. Lay it before me. I'll make a trade with you, and I'm going to give you the peace that passes all understanding. As we've gone through this letter, you could totally misconstrue Peter's point and think that Christians have to endure suffering with joy and not have any fear and anxiety. Right? We read this, and Peter's so black and white, and I'm black and white, so I like, I like the, the letters like this, but... But we can read that and think that there's no, like, grace at all. But, but God is the God of grace. Right? Peter knows that suffering will elicit fear and anxiety. He suffered even to the point of death himself. His point is, yes, suffering brings fear and anxiety, but unload yourself of that fear and anxiety. Cast it onto Jesus and let him trade your fear for his peace. If you want to stand firm Even in suffering, you have to unload your fear and anxiety on Jesus because he cares for you. Peter goes on, he says, guard yourself. Verse 8, he says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Has anybody ever played paintball before? Like, I remember back when I was like a teenager, it was kind of like a popular thing. Like, youth groups would take their youth group and they'd go play paintball. And paintball uh, is a really weird thing because the entire time you're playing, you know someone is literally hunting you right now. Someone's just totally bent on finding you and hurting you. Because it doesn't feel good when you get that paint shot at you. It, it hurts. 
And so I remember playing and, and like there's this intense, weird feeling like the, my heartbeat would beat in my ears and it's like real quiet in the woods. Everybody's trying to be all stealthy. Like someone is looking for me and if it was a real gun, they would kill me, right? Like that's the only difference between we're hunting people. The only difference is we're playing with paint instead of real bullets. And so there's this weird, eerie feeling like there's someone out there that is bent on like shooting me in the face with this, this paint stuff and hurting me and causing me physical harm. And that's a, that's a very sobering, <laughs> very sobering feeling. But that's exactly what Peter tells us is happening here. That there's an adversary who is bent on destroying you, on destroying your family, destroying your kids, destroying your life. He says, be on guard. If you're going to stand firm and endure through suffering, you better recognize that there is an adversary. He says you need to be sober-minded. You need to clear your head. Again, get your head right. How many times have we talked about Peter talking about getting your head right? He says you need to be alert. Don't let your guard down. There's someone out there who is actively trying to harm you. And Peter says he's prowling around like a lion, meaning he's cunning and sneaky. He's not going to attack the way that you think he's going to attack. We, we're on guard against the big stuff, aren't we? Right? We, we guard ourselves and our families from things like abortion and homosexuality and all the big stuff that's glaringly sinful and wrong, right? We as lifelong Christians, we're good at guarding against those types of things, right? We're, we're going to make sure our kids know better about those kinds of things. But what about when we drink a little too much to cope with our stressful day? Or what about when we let corporate worship take a back seat to every other thing in our life? Or what about when we neglect time meditating on the word? We have this perception that our enemy is like the boogeyman. When he comes walking into the room, everybody's like, there he is. We know him, right? Like that's, that's our mindset. Like that he's easily identifiable and we're going to know it and we're going to be able to easily stand guard against it. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says he's prowling around like a lion. Our enemy's more cunning than we think. He, he's more sneaky than we think. He knows about your flesh. He knows about your weaknesses. He knows that you have a propensity to be self-centered. He knows that you have a propensity to be apathetic towards the things of God. He knows you have a propensity to idolatry. And he'll use those propensities to devour you. He'll use your desire to sleep in as a way to keep you from corporate worship. And, turn, and in turn, he devours your priorities and the priorities of your family. Right? We, we, we think that it's not a big deal to just not make corporate worship a priority, even though the word tells us that corporate worship is a priority. And I'm telling you, I've seen over and over and over again children, kids in the family being devoured by the enemy because the parents never made corporate worship a priority. So that to them, your, your faith's not real, so why would it be real to them? Right? If this isn't serious to you, why would it be serious to them? Right? If you just come when it's easy and, and, and comfortable, and then you go home and live just like every other parent that they know, 
Why would this be real to them? Right? Why would they come? What would, what would be the reason they could stay home and sleep late? He'll use your desires to de-stress from a long day as a way to devour you with addiction and misplaced hope. We have a lot of coping mechanisms, right? They're stressful, we're busy, we're exhausted, we come home, and instead of coping the way that Christians should cope, right, finding our sufficiency in Christ, we cope with all the things of the world. He'll use your propensity to waste time as a way to devour you with a lack of desire to study God's word, giving you a false understanding of who God is and what God wants. We have a propensity to not spend our time doing the things that God would want us to do with our time. Right? We're all guilty of that. Satan isn't luring you with the big stuff. He knows that's not how to get you. He's luring you with your own fleshly desires until you no longer even have the desire to stand firm. That's how he's drawing you away. If you think that Satan's coming at you trying to get you to make some of this horrible decision right off the bat, that's just not how he works. He's going to get you to make these small little decisions of disobedience to lead you away from the faith. And he devours you. He devours your family. He destroys your life. That's how this whole thing works. That's why Peter says, be on guard. Warning about false teachers and their ability to disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, Paul tells us that Satan does the same thing. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. he says, And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul says Satan lures you with stuff that you will buy into. Stuff that your own heart and reasoning will make you feel like it's okay and it's right. But his motive is always destruction. Jesus warned us of this too. John 10, 10, the thief comes what? Only, only to steal and kill and destroy. His sole purpose is destruction. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your kids. This is why it's so important to be sober-minded and alert. This is why Peter is warning the church, hey, be sober-minded and alert. Be on guard. There's someone who is actively trying to destroy you who wants to end your life, who wants to take away all of your desire to serve God. And he's not going to do it in the most obvious way. He's going to do it in ways that you like. Be on guard. It can happen in a flash. Peter says, resist him in the faith. You resist him by submitting to God. Look at Jesus being tempted in Luke 4, right? We, we see his response over and over again as he's being tempted. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, submit yourself to God, resist your adversary, declare war back on him. Listen, believer, declare war back on him. Don't just sit there and take it. Declare war back on him. Punch him in the mouth with faith and obedience to God. And James says the devil will flee. That's how you win the war. Obedience to God. Little steps of obedience. When that little step says, hey, you've had a long week. Sleep in. It's not a big deal. 
You can watch it online anyway. Sleep in, it's not a big deal. That's the decision point, right? One little step towards disobedience leads you the wrong direction. One little step of obedience leads you to the right direction. How do you win the war? Little steps of obedience. Little steps of obedience constantly. The next thing he says is entrust yourself. Look at verse 10. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. I am not like a huge fan of flying. How many of you guys like love flying? Like you're all about it. How many of you guys are like, I do not like it? All right. I'm with you that do not like people. All right. I'm not like, I'll do it. I would rather fly than drive like 20 hours somewhere. But the whole time I'm a little unnerved, right? Like you're thousands of feet in the air and I've watched enough movies that, to know how that, how that works, right? If that plane goes down there, there's not a whole lot of hope for you, right? And, and so I'm always kind of freaked out. And, and have you ever been on a, on a flight and, and then all of a sudden there's like some significant turbulence? Like not just a little like boom, but like, like a bunch of like booms, right? Which where you're like, okay, are we going to live? Like is this, are we going to survive this flight, right? So when that happens... My temptation is never to say, you know what, this dude, this dude's struggling. I should probably go up there and take over, right? Because even in the midst of turbulence, who's the most qualified person to fly the plane? It's the guy that's up there flying the plane, right? Even in the midst of all that craziness and fear and people shouting out and all that good stuff, there's nobody else who really is qualified to go up there and fly the plane. We're just stuck trusting the dude who's flying the plane, right? He's the most qualified. There's going to be turbulence in the Christian life. There's going to be suffering, but the God of all grace is the most qualified to get you through it. He's the same God that called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's the same God who saved you. He's proven his love and power in bringing you to salvation. Entrust yourself to him. That's what Peter says. Entrust yourself to him. And this should sound familiar to us because Peter told us in chapter 2 that this is exactly what Jesus did. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. He suffered, but didn't threaten. He was reviled, but didn't revile in return. Instead, he entrusted himself to the Father. And Peter says, you do the same. He says, he himself, talking about Jesus, will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. What do those words mean? Restore just means to make whole. That God will make you whole. He'll make you complete. He will establish you, which just means this idea of, of constancy and endurance. He will endure you to the end. He will strengthen you. He will make you sturdy. He will support you. This is this idea of a foundation, a strong foundation against the storms of life, right? He'll, he'll, he'll be that cornerstone for you. What all these have in common, they all connote this, this idea of strength and immovability. Peter says that God himself will strengthen you and cause you to endure. If we entrust ourselves to him, he'll do the work in us. That's the promise here. You don't have to be strong enough on your own. You don't have to grit your teeth and fight through the suffering by yourself. No, 
You just trust him in the same way that he saved you, and he'll continue to save you and keep you until the end. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't rely on your own understanding in all your ways. Know him, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He says, trust God with your whole heart. Don't depend on your own understanding or emotions, right? We talked about this several weeks ago. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your own understanding because your flesh will lead you in the wrong direction every time. In everything you do, acknowledge him, glorify him with your life, and all of your things that you do in your life, choose to glorify God, and he will direct your path. He'll do the work. Peter says, you've suffered for a little while after God will sanctify uh, after God will sanctify you according to his purpose. You don't have to be strong enough to endure suffering for the glory of God. You don't have to be strong enough to stand firm, which is a good thing, because you're not. You're not strong enough to endure suffering and remain to the end. You're not. You just have to entrust yourself to God and let him do the work in you. So if we want to stand firm in the midst of suffering for the, for the glory of God, Peter says, humble yourself, submit yourself to God, Walk in those steps of obedience. He says, unload yourself, trade him, your fear and anxieties for his peace. Guard yourself, watch out for the enemy, resist him by submitting to God and trust yourself and trust yourself to God and he will do the work of endurance. And so let's finish up with verses 11 through 14 and then we'll be done. He says, to him be dominion forever, to God be glory forever. Right, that's again, that's the focus of our life. That's the focus of this book. Live your life for the glory of God. He says, through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in it. This is the call of the believer. Remain. Stand firm in the gospel. Don't waver. Continue on remaining true in the gospel. And he says, she who is Babylon... Who, who is in Babylon, he's talking about a church here, chosen together with you, sends you greetings as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is every uh, youth boy's favorite verse. It's their life verse. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So we've spent 14 weeks, I don't know if you guys realize it's been that long, 14 weeks studying this book together. 14 weeks walking through the book of First Peter. My hope and prayer has been that God would change our hearts. That he would lead us out of this, this fake cultural Christianity of 2021. That he would awaken his church. We would create revival. And bring us to a point of authentic faith and submission to God. I told you in week one, those of you who have stuck this long. I do believe that persecution for the church in America is on the horizon. And that we may see it in our lifetime. And I also told you in week one that I don't think that we're ready. I don't think that we're ready. You know why I don't think that we're ready? Because I think that we're incredibly self-centered. I think that we're incredibly focused on ourselves and what we want and the comforts that we desire. And I think that our lives are in stark contrast to what we've learned in 1 Peter. 
that there is this call for believers to stand in stark contrast to the world. That Christianity is bigger than just offering up to God one hour on a Sunday. Right? It's got to be bigger than that, right? When I look at the early church, and then I look at the modern church, it's sickening that we've come so far. That we've gotten so wrapped up in self. And that our focus is not on the glory of God. Our focus is on the God of comfort. And so many churches have catered to this. Right? We, we got people that are formulating sermons literally just to be entertaining. Right? Just to put people's behinds in the seats. Everything in the modern church has become about comfort. We do things at certain times so people will come and attend. We put coffee in the foyer so you don't have to worry about that at your house. You can come and you can consume. It's all about the comforts. And that's just so not what we're reading here, right? Like, Peter's telling these people, hey, you're about to be lit on fire as candles to light up the gardens of the emperor. Stand firm in the gospel. Honor the emperor. Submit to him. Right? These are the things that we've read in this book. And that is so far from what we do as Christians today. And my hope and my, 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 my prayer bent through this whole thing is that God would change my heart and that he would change your heart and that we would be brought back to this idea that following Jesus means crucifying self and giving yourself to him fully, even in the midst of suffering. My hope and prayer is that God would open our eyes to the reality that the gospel is bigger than just Sunday morning listening to some dude talk for an hour and singing some songs that it, it should change your life. And if it hasn't, you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because you call yourself a Christian. You're not a Christian because you come to church. You're not a Christian because you read your Bible. You're not a Christian because you try to be a good person. You're not a Christian because you're a Republican. You're not a Christian because you're a Democrat. You're a Christian because you've recognized that Jesus is Lord. And you've laid your life before him and said, anything that you want with my life, it's yours. You want my kids? They're yours. You want my money? It's yours. You want my free time? It's yours. You want my attitude? It's yours. You want my fears and my anxieties, it's yours. This is what Christianity is. Whoever told you that Christianity can be some ineffectual aspect of your life that you only acknowledge when you want to has lied to you. They lied to you. 
and I'm sorry that they lied to you. God is not a means to an end. He is the faithful creator God who will be honored and worshiped, whether you choose to or not. There's no such thing as half-hearted Christianity. I'm praying for revival in the church, not just our church, but the church, that God would awaken people to truly give themselves to him fully. Peter was preparing these early Christians for suffering that we can't even imagine. We can't even fathom. It wasn't just men and women dying and suffering for the cause of Christ. It was their whole families. Parents chose to sacrifice themselves and their kids for the gospel. And it's just really unnerving that we have a church today that's not even willing to sacrifice anything. Right? If it causes us any grief, we're like, no, I'm not, I'm not in. That kind of call is so much bigger than what we've made Christianity to be. It's, it, and, and as scary as it is, it's, it's, it's real. And that's, that's why I want it for us. That's why I want it for you. Because it's real. That's the kind of Christianity I want for you. It's what I want for myself. I want us to put all away all the pretense. And, and have this kind of line in the sand moment. Where we decide if we really believe this stuff or not. Like I've, I've spent 14 weeks laying before you the truth of God's word. And I believe it with my whole heart that this is, I mean, we've read it. We've walked through it verse by verse. There's no skating around it. Like, this is what it says. So you have to decide, are you going to submit yourself to what it says and believe it? Are you going to continue to try to make excuses and say, well, you know, God wouldn't want that. And maybe you yourself in your mind is like this little God that you've created might not want that. but, But we just read that that's exactly what God wants. And so the question as we wrap up this series is, is just that. Do you, do you really believe this? Do you really believe this stuff? Are you bought into this? Are you done with the pretense and the fake Christianity stuff of 2021 that we've built for ourselves for some reason? Are you done with it too? I hope that you are. I hope that you're tired of all the fake Christianity type cheesy stuff. I like to call it Air One Christianity. If you like Air One, no offense. But those people are so cheesy. God bless them. Do you really believe this? Have you really surrendered your life to Jesus? If and when the suffering comes, will you endure? Will you endure? If the answer is no, my prayer is that the Spirit is speaking to you and that you will choose today to surrender yourself to Christ and really, truly entrust yourself to Him. And if the answer is yes, but you've, you've let your guard down, maybe Satan had a field day with your apathy and lack of intentionality, challenge is to get back in the game. 
get focused. Recognize that there's an enemy who is out there looking to destroy you and your children. And make this the foundation of your life. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? I really do believe God's been doing a work through this book, this letter, as we've studied it together. If not in anybody else's heart, at least in my own. As somebody who's grown up in church my whole life, I've just gotten so tired of the all the pretense and the people professing that they believe in God, but then their lives reflect no real conviction, no real change. And so this morning you recognize that maybe you never truly surrender your life to Christ. Maybe you surrender your life to like church community or maybe you surrender your life to self-righteousness, trying to be a good person. But you never truly gave your heart to Christ. You never truly bought into the gospel. If that's you... You've never truly surrendered your life to Christ. And we would love to have a conversation with you about that. We would love to walk through the scriptures and show you what it looks like to truly give your life to Jesus. So if that's you, here in a moment the band's going to sing. There's going to be people standing on the sides. They're going to have lanyards on. They'd love to have a conversation with you about it. So my challenge to you is walk over there, grab them by the hand and say, hey, I want to know what it means to truly give my heart to Christ, truly surrender to him. And then if you've, you know you've given your life to Christ, there is fruit of that in your life. You, you know that, but maybe for whatever reason you've let your guard down and Satan's had a filled day in your life and you're ready to, to repent of that and refocus yourself on what Christianity is really, truly revealed itself to be in the word of God. If that's you, there's altars here. You can come as the band sings in a moment and sing. You can grab one of those people by the hand and say, hey, I just want to talk to you about something. But again, my prayer and my hope is that, that God is doing something within us as a church, in our hearts, changing us, redirecting our minds. Peter said over and over again, get your mind right, get your mind right. It's so easy to get distracted in the things of this world. My hope and prayer is that that's that God's leading our minds back where they need to be. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to sing, and however God's leading you, my hope is that you will respond to that leading. Father God, we, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that even though we were sinners, even though we had rebellious hearts towards you, even though we wanted to do things our own way, even in light of who you are, we wanted to do things our own way. God, I thank you for the fact that you drew us, that your spirit revealed the truth and the reality of our sinful condition and and opened our eyes to the gospel that we can repent of our sin and submit to you and surrender in faith.
and that you save us, that you make us into new creations with new affections and new desires and new hopes. So God, I pray that you would draw us back to that. Let that be our foundation. Let that be who we are as a church, rooted in the truth of that gospel. That we would live our lives as a reflection of what you've done in us, that we would live our lives fully and wholly for your glory. That even as suffering may come, even as persecution may come, even as life may get difficult, that we would walk in obedience, submitted to you. We would give ourselves to you fully trusting in you. God, I pray that you would create revival in our hearts. Help us to get our focus off ourselves and back on you. Thank you so much for listening, and we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.